0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller.
0: You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts. Rick Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Third on K-State <laughs> 106.5 FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside,
3: and 1050
0: AM Palm Springs.
3: You are back in the house of Mystery and I'm Ivan Warren, and uh, today, sitting in uh, Sidelines, we got the game. We got That's Mr. right. Brian Emphasis Turnoff. on the game. Game. the game. I mean,
1: game, yes. Uh, it's He's Brian. Hello. Nice it's, to be back. It's the game. Yeah, you've been gone for a long time. I know. Too long. Too long. Don't take it personal, all right? <laughs> well, actually, you can take it personal. It was mainly you anyway.
3: So. Well, of course. I always upset people. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot who you were. I mean... <laughs> That's why you're like, who's the game again? Oh, yeah. Who's the game? The game. Well, mm. so what's going So now you are back and in the crack and everything's good. Um,
1: yeah, that's definitely how you, how you think about it for sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How's the mind's Eye podcast going? Mind's uh,
1: it's on a little break right now because I am, uh, writing a book, uh, not a little different from our guest tonight, uh, Garrick. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on that and I'm almost done. So I really want to put all my effort. I, then, you know, I, I can't do like a million projects like you, Alan. I just don't have that skill level and that focus. So I got to focus one at a time.
3: It's because I'm all alone and I have nobody to love me. That's why I, I didn't want
1: to say it, but I'm glad you did.
3: Well, so sure. you're, you're rewriting different than Derek. You're writing instead about the Turkish pretender, you're writing about the Turkish bash. bash. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really go into
1: the history of it. I'm sure Gary can talk a little bit more about the, the Turkish bath than I can, but um, you know, <laughs> I I want to, I, I like to learn from all, for sure.
3: Of course, you're a watcher. Oh, <laughs> you're <in> a voyeur! <laughs> I think they called you. That's what like the <laughs> voyeur game. Um, Only with these two gentlemen right here, for sure. Yeah. yeah well, gentle. There you go. Um, you obviously don't know our guest, so <laughs> our guest is the returning, and he's known as the gentle. Garrick Jones, thanks for being here, Ger-
2: Garrick. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Nice to be back again. Good day, fellas. Good day. Yeah. Wow.
3: So, so what's going on? How's how's Garrick been the last little while? Like uh, all this well, stuff.
2: Well, t- today's been the first sort of real lull in my life. For months. Um, I somehow managed with uh, editors changing around deadlines, and publishers ended up sort of juggling four books at once. And one of them's just released last week, so I've just got a bit of a breathing space now. But it's been very, very busy. I, I really don't like multitasking that much. But, yeah, apart from that, the COVID situation where I live in the small coastal town on the Great Barrier Reef hasn't really affected us much. We've only had one week of compulsory mask wearing in the past two years. Um, and I'm fully jabbed. Um, and so life goes on. Well,
3: you were fully jabbed before the,
2: <laughs> <laughs> not for a number of years, Alan. <laughs> especially
3: when you two get it together, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> well, that's you know. So, I I always wonder about this with writers because it takes so much of you in the book, especially when you're when you're adding a lot of yourself to it, like in in fictional stories as well as historical, and you're putting it together. Um, that it, it, so none of this sort of has bothered you the last year or so and now with Russia and everything going on oh it- uh,
2: yeah well exactly in, in, uh, incredibly that this latest book that's just come out, The Servants of the Crown um, The Turkish Pretender is based in 1855 in London at the end of the Crimean War and it's about it has lots to do with Russians and the Crimea, the timely and there's mention of Ukraine in it as well and of course I wrote this book Five years ago, so there was a bit of prescience there. Um, Yeah, it's been on my mind when I was uh, checking the final proof, uh, which was just about the time that the first invasion started, it uh, it resonated quite a bit.
3: Yeah, it's something that never, I I don't know, it it just never ends, does it? You know, uh, something you're writing about that happened so long ago is still really happening now
2: yeah and of course then everybody says ah oh, you're riding the wave of a the wave of a popular yeah. thing and you have to try to explain well no this was written book was written in um, to, 2017 you know yeah. not yesterday books don't write themselves unless you're incredibly prolific in a matter of weeks i mean my books usually take uh, about 3 months for the first draft and the, probably about a year after i've written the first draft before they say the, get to the publisher you know
3: yeah well if you were writing the wave you'd you'd throw a pandemic in there
2: oh exactly and i'm a bit sick of pandemic books to be honest just, <laughs> oh my god yeah love in the pandemic if i i'm gonna baff if i hear one more yeah read one more <laughs> book about that yeah i can't It's it it's interesting. I just picked up a book I hadn't read for years and years. It used to be a Men on Men series, which was a whole collection of short stories. I don't remember it. Published in the 80s and 90s. And I was just reading Men on Men 3. And it was all about the AIDS crisis. Because we don't really think about that anymore. Um, but every book written by gay people and about gay people was about death Yeah. in that period.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the same now. But the thing is, it's crazy now because every time I go to to put on Netflix or something like that, or streaming, you know, you go through 10 or 20 movies and it's some sort of end of the world, pandemic virus oh, yeah. disease and, oh, or zombie. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, well, it's, you know,
2: asteroids. That's the other one. Yeah. Crashing into Earth.
3: <laughs> it's all the end. The gloom and doom. Yep, You know? Yep. Uh, so, okay. What brought you to, to write this book?
2: Uh, this is a really interesting story and I hope it doesn't get too boring. Um, but when I was, my first book was published with uh, Manifold Press in the UK, I got to meet a whole lot of um, interesting young U- UK writers and older UK writers. And um, I was introduced to one particular writer who was very, very interested. We spent a lot of time chatting in a, a forum and he was a young disabled man and just getting into writing and asked me if if I'd be interested in co-writing a book. As an exercise, I said, "Sure, you're," and we wrote we wrote this book. Um, it was which was called Undercurrents in those days, and uh, I sent the book to the publisher, and who was not real happy with it. Said it just sounded like read like two different people writing um, separately, and I quite agreed. But just at that point, um, it was discovered that this. Particular young man had been catfishing us, including the publisher, and wasn't actually a young disabled man in a wheelchair, but an older woman in her 60s in a wheelchair pretending to be a man. <laughs> Alan so can it, obviously it, relate
1: to that, but you know. <laughs> uh,
2: my God. Well, it was a huge shock because, you know, in the course of the conversation over, over the year that we've been writing it, there was all sorts of like quite um, intimate exchange. This wasn't sexual, but talking about very private things and experiences. And I suddenly realized that I'd been, I'd been pulled into this conversation in some sort of vicarious enjoyment by this older woman pretending to be a young man. I, I never was interested in flirting or anything like that, but just disclosing personal details because, you know, this young guy said he'd never had any sexual experiences and wanted to know what X was like. and X, So it was really, really creepy. So eventually the publisher got the rights back and I retained the rights to the whole book and stuck it away in a cupboard and it at me because I really found the, the subject and the period interesting. So last year I decided to rewrite the whole thing in my own words. I changed all the characters. I kept the basic plot the same. Um, and then when I submitted to the publisher, they absolutely loved it. So that just came out last week. But it was a very rough, rough time. It left me feeling really dirty for a long time afterwards. Uh, that,
1: that's a lot to chew on that right there. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I want to come back to the book in a little bit, but it, just because is such a crazy story. Um, yeah you never had any indication that never, that, never at all. Yeah. Wow. Huh.
2: The only indication I ever had was that we were talking about, um, the Napoleonic Wars. And I asked in a, uh, an email as you do, I asked in an email, you know, whether he'd ever seen the Hornblower series with Joan Griffith, um, and said, no. And I said, well, I'm really, I'd love to send you a copy for, um, uh, for Christmas. And he said, oh, we haven't got a post box. We're miles away from the post office. I mean, so I sent it to a friend, and I should have twig- twigged then that there was something wrong going on. And how, they, didn't. How, did they, how, how, how
1: did you get reached out to by this person? Just because it's just like it, it's so wild well, it was, me. How did you connect? It was, in
2: this, it was in this chat room. We're talking about writing. And it, this young guy was saying he was just starting out and um, just wanted to, an exercise. I thought it would be a really good exercise for me, seeing how other people write, because I was relatively new to writing myself. Um, and I just wanted to see how another author's mind thought. And But I really liked the story. And although I didn't always agree with what he wrote, I thought, well, you know, let's see what the publisher thinks. And of course, he didn't like it.
1: And it's funny because you still refer to that person as a as a he as a, as him, but you, knowing it's a woman, whatever happened yeah, to this person? <laughs> you, I you have, have any, no
2: it? idea. But they were ostracized from the writing community. It was one of those big scandals. Do you remember Josh Lanyon? The big scandal with Josh Lanyon, who wrote writes a lot of crime novels, um, and actually, you know, catfished the whole writing community by saying read books written by a man about men, and actually turned out to be a woman. <laughs> you know? Huh? And is still writing and as a woman and has been accepted by the gay romance community, which is mostly women readers anyway. But, um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's their story. I mean, they write really well, but that whole idea of pretending to be something that you aren't is, doesn't sit well on my shoulders.
3: No, 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 no. That's, uh,
2: and you can usually pretty well tell if there's a sex scene. You, once you start reading, you go, no, nah, no, nah, guys, don't do that. I mean, we do a lot.
0: How dare you?
2: But we don't do that.
3: (laughs) But we don't do that.
2: It was way too tender. Yeah, Yeah, well. (laughs) No, I wrote to one woman. I said, uh, you might have to edit this out. I said, just, you know, when you go home, just ask your husband to stick it in. How dare you? in the ironing with no preparation and see how you think it feels. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that this experience of writing, it was – it was pretty cathartic at the time because I thought to myself, "Geez, I, I must be really getting old to be in for such a long, long <laughs> time." But the, the the writing was so um, it was so engaging in a way that made me feel really sorry for this person who I thought was a young guy in a wheelchair. Mm. You know, when I rewrote it, it was a cleansing process. I think I wrote a much, much better story. Um, and uh, it was all in my own voice, of course, which makes makes the book cohesive, makes it coherent from the beginning to end, so it doesn't feel like a whole lot of chopped-up dialogues written by a committee.
3: Right, right. right so, so let's let's tell the listeners, what is the basic premise of the book?
2: Uh, the basic premise of the book is um, a rumour that was going around um, during Queen Victoria, Victoria's reign that um, her father... Had entered into a morganatic marriage, that means a marriage of a noble person with a baseborn person, and had fathered a son. Um, and then when uh, his father, George III had found out dissolved the marriage, and the child had been spirited away. So this, the, the premise behind this story is this, this clique of disaffected uh, English noblemen and Irishmen who were really unhappy with a woman on the throne and Queen Victoria's was, husband was very, very unpopular in the, 19, in the 1850s and they hatched this plot to bring this child, the pretender, who'd been brought up in Turkey and overthrow the throne and install him um, as the king, as a puppet king. Uh, because the way they brought him up was without him learning English, um, only being able to speak in French and Russian, and they were going to rule him, rule through him. So that's the premise of the story. But it's actually about a a group of four young men called the brothers who grew up together and who, two of whom grew up together, and the other two who they met in their teenage years, um, who've been friends for 20 years and who, two of them work for the foreign secretary as what I call intelligences. which is a Victorian equivalent of spies. And they, this group of the four are tasked with uncovering the plot, finding out who's behind it and stopping the pretender from arriving in uh, London so that the plot to overthrow Queen Victoria can be foiled.
3: When you put this together, um, how do you decide what you're going to do with the story? Like there's, there's truth there's history and then there's fiction how do you well how do you draw that line
2: it all has to be based on on historical accuracy that's the way that I write when I write I probably the majority of my time is research researching before I put a word on the page so I work I did a lot of research on London in the 1850s the hospital system um, the you know just what people did the a lot of research into the aristocracy and the use of titles and deference and who went where, who was living where, what sort of jobs were available. And because it revolves around a major uh, British shipping um, line, a lot of research into um, goods and traffic by Clipper and early Steamboat. Uh, So once I got that all uh, worked out and I had all the facts in place, then I was able to slot the story into around those historical facts. Because there's nothing worse than reading something like, oh, no, that couldn't have possibly happened because on that date, Fred Bloggs was in, I don't know, wherever. Yeah.
3: When you get all the facts together and you've got it all laid out, kind of the, uh, basically what's going on, how do you decide where you're going to bring the story to or what, what you're going to tell in the story?
2: Well, I always have an idea of what the plot is before I start. Um, and I'm a pantser. You know what that means? Oh,
3: yeah. By the seat of the pants. Yeah,
2: I'm a pantser. So I, I always have a beginning in my mind, I have an end in my mind, and I have the denouement or the big action crisis scene in my mind before I start. So it's a, I, that somehow, as I'm writing, it always leads me to those points and where I place the action and where I place the human interest or where I slot little bits of history into the... To the dialogue without it being an information dump, um, it—I don't know—it's sort of a, a reasonably natural process for me. Yeah. Although it's—I wouldn't say it's easy.
3: No, no, it wouldn't be, uh, you know. And I never wear pants myself, so I'm not a
2: pants. He's a deep
3: answer. He's a deep answer. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, I. Well, I live in tropical Queensland, and you know, can imagine what life's like up here. Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> you know. Been... That's why I asked if we were doing video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, there we go. I missed my chance. We can switch we can... over. We can yeah. easily switch over and get get the TV going. Yeah. You know, <laughs> mystery TV. We'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, yeah, but I, I always find it interesting that um, you put together a story and and it's de- it's centered on the truth. But when you say human interests, so you you do you have an um, how do you say, kind of a, something you want to get across to people, like um, uh, all, a subtext? Always, yeah.
2: always the subtext with all of my books, and this is the ninth one I've had. Published. I'm a very, very lucky writer. Uh, And my basic uh, ideal in all of my books is to demonstrate that gay men are not a race apart. We just are like any other man in the world. The only difference is that we might go home to a, a partner of the same sex. We can be bricklayers. We can be judges. We can be labourers. We can be whatever you want to call it. And we don't define ourselves by sexuality, most of us. We just happen to be gay. And that's what I try to put in my books, the normality of most of the gay men's lives in the world. And I translate that historically as well uh, as I'm writing.
3: How how do you feel like the... um modern day gay community finds that because everybody's so into identifying themselves as, know, and labeling yeah. and stuff like I, you know, cause I'm, I'm like in in your age category and I'm, and I'm always sort of, you know, I always wonder why everyone's so, so.
2: Well, I suppose in being brought up in the, you know, I grew up in the 1950s where that was a period where, People knew other people were gay, but you never actually talked about it. In fact, no one ever talked about their personal life because it was considered bad manners. You know, you didn't. if you started talking about somebody's personal life, you were branded a gossip and people would not like you much. So also gay men during that in the 1950s and the early 1960s, we learned to compartmentalize our lives, living double identities, if you like. And it was no great hardship. I suppose modern people think it is some sort of like, oh, my God, it must have been terrible walking around with your collar pulled up and your hat over your eyes so nobody recognised you. It wasn't like that. You just learned to behave in different ways. Like speaking two languages. You know, you speak English at home, you speak Italian out in the community if you live in Italy. It's just part of our... The way that we're brought up but this whole identity of the gay community somebody once said to me we just had the, Ma- the mardi gras here the sydney mardi gras and somebody once said to me for every single guy on one of those floats and there must be thousands of them there's 20 or 30 other guys out there living in the community who don't actually think about i don't i don't identify themselves with the gay community there's just their sexuality that differs and I think we need to keep that in mind, that the visible gay community is really the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Because a lot of people in society, to him, it's, it's no great thing. The fact that they happen to love another man or they happen to like sleeping with a, other guys, the same with women as well. If they have a partner or they like sleeping with somebody of the same sex, it doesn't define who they are. It's just you know, part of their lives. So this is what I tried to do in every book I've written, is just to describe that normality of life of, of people who don't necessarily identify as within the community in inverted commas
3: how do you tackle that like how do you do that with um without trying to emphasize on the gay parts of the people but yet let them know they're gay like what what you just
2: well if you read any detective novel written by anybody in the whole of history you write it exactly the same except that the protagonist might have a boyfriend um in my Clyde Smith mystery series which we've just we've I've already you've already interviewed me about. Um, Clyde's just a, a, an ex-war veteran. He's been a cop and now he's working as a private detective. He has connections through his close circle of friends who are gay men um, to, you know, what what gay life's like. But there's those days in the 1950s, there weren't gay clubs. There weren't... Not in Australia. I know there were gay bars and stuff in the US. But, and we didn't have um, bathhouses in the same way that you did in the States all the way through. We had Turkish baths, but that was completely sort of different thing and they were never pick-up places. So he just goes about his life and it's just like a regular detective crime fiction book, except he's got a boyfriend.
3: Right, right. Well, you know, I, I, I think that... Um... You know, when you read um, Brian's book, you'll realize that there was a pickup joint in the Turkish book. Yes,
1: yes, we did. We, we went <laughs> yeah. over this. Yeah, You know, that's how I inject my life into my own <laughs> book, personally. Uh, <laughs> what about you? I mean, how do you uh, inject, like, you know, outside of, you know, getting through this idea, you know, the normality of, of being gay and, and putting that into your books, how do you inject your own personal life into it outside of that aspect?
2: Uh, in many, many ways. there's um, I wrote a uh, series, my first book published was a book called The Boys of Bularoo, which is a collection of six short stories spanning six de- ta- decades in the 20th century, and each one of them is about um, about different aspects of men at war or in between the wars and forming friendships and meeting other guys and falling in love, and nearly every one of those six stories has something waterbaric biographical in it. In fact, the last story in it is basically the story of me meeting my, the great love of my life, who was an American um, soldier on R&R in 1966 on the beach in Sydney. So, but I, I made a, I put that in the story. I think it's really, you know, I've had a very interesting life. I had 30 years as a professional opera singer all, all over the world. Um, I, when I left that, I went into lecturing in university in history. So, I try to, I've had a lot of experiences that I try to bleed those into my stories to give it some some sense of reality and grounding so that it's not all just fiction, but there's some truth behind. See, for example, I never write about any place that I've never lived in or visited for any, um, haven't spent any amount of time in. I just don't think that that's right.
3: Yeah, there's definitely a feel. There's something you pick up when you go to these places.
2: Oh, for sure. You've only got to go and... Um, any country in the world and, uh, and have a look what the regular c- cup of coffee is and I mean it's not the same in any country in the whole wide world you just realise that every every culture has something completely different to it
1: so when I read some of your books and I see the, the gay opera singer um, turned writer that is like a that is, I, it's pretty obvious that that is you, not just a the character. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we fact, can expect that one. Yeah, yeah please. I did
2: one of my really popular books is a book. Uh, it's a theatre m- murder mystery set in 1902, in which I talk about it, it, during the crime investigation. And everything, I talk about what it's like to be a performer and what it's like backstage, what it's like to be in the dressing room, what it's like when you're putting your makeup on or trying your costumes on, what it's like to rehearse, what it's like standing backstage and watching all the scenery move. Um, and people found that really, really fascinating because th- there's not much out there about that. And also having a gay protagonist and a murder mystery—it's—it's it's been very, very popular. That book.
3: He's made plenty of men sing. There's lots of, <laughs> all
1: of you reverse the role. I like yeah. it
3: uh, all over yeah. YouTube. He's got them all <laughs> screaming at the top <laughs> of their lungs. Like, uh, hmm.
2: Yeah. This um, interestingly enough, this is slightly uh, tangential. In, in the course of writing, I've. I've uh, worked with four really, really, really amazing editors. I was having a discussion this morning with my new editor in the UK, Nick Taylor, about um, how finding, not necessarily finding an editor, but finding the editor for you is so important because when you actually write a book, you need somebody who needs to get what you're about and, and not try to make it their version of your book. So that's been a really interesting process all the way along. I've been so fortunate to have had four amazing editors, two of whom um, I still work with, Nick, who's going to be editing my next Clyde Smith book, which goes to him tomorrow to come out in October, and Linda McQueen, who's the editor for Yale University Press in London, um, who edits my World War Two series. Just It's just reassuring to get that... Um, what do you call it? So, like an iron fist in a velvet glove treatment? Um, and yeah. that really pushes any writer on to to feel validated in their craft.
3: So you you must be fascinated with the history and stuff. What's, what's your favourite era, like 1900s? Um,
2: my favourite era, I suppose, is the 1950s because that's the era in which I grew up surrounded by a whole lot of men who were basically what I call ruined men who came back from the war and put on smiles and tried to be happy but were, uh, like, just traumatised inside. My whole life was, uh, as a young man, was brought about these guys who would get in, you know, start punching each other up, the I moment had a couple of beers, to try and, you know, get rid of the violence. And I'm really fascinated by that era of the new world where everything old was thrown out. We're going to have a complete new society after the Second World War the whole thing staffed, if you want to say the word, or led by these ruined guys who, who just had all of this...
0: How dare you! Side
2: ...that they were told to just smile and get on with, get on with life, get married, no matter what you did. I've just finished reading, um, for the third time, Berube's book, uh, Coming Out Under Fire, which is his uh, book about the American military and gay people during the Second World War. And that whole thing of all these guys coming back and just getting married because they had to when they're basically gay... Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by that, that period because I didn't understand it as a kid, but as I got older.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless it to get 30 30 to get 30 to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at
0: mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
2: all understood you know what these guys were going through no, and do you think
1: like the pendulum has swung to the opposite way um, and let, you know, with the generational difference, you know, they, they had to get married and now obviously things are, people are more open. I mean, what type of uh, impact I, do you think that? I has think
2: there's still a she- lot of that going on. I, I've got a friend uh, who five years ago after 40 years of marriage decided when the kids left home, you know, and grandchildren and stuff, suddenly decided he he'd been gay his whole life and left his wife. And I think, well, why the hell? And he said to me, I got married because that was what was expected of me. Um, it still goes on. You still get guys. I, I mean, I, I I did a lot of, um, Alan and I were talking about this, when I we was talking about my book, Wheelchair, when I did a lot of research with vets and cops and stuff like that about, um, about what do you call it? Uh, beats, is that the word? Um, places where men, men pick, pick each other up.
3: Oh, yeah. Like
2: yeah. Cool. Yeah, uh, cru- Alan cruising, would know that. You know. Yeah. Cruising places, right. So, and he, he said, one of the guys said to me, most of the guys that he meets in these parks and places are all married guys. So hmm. th- there's still a lot going on. I don't think a lot of that's progressed. I think the awareness of gay people has moved on a lot, and generally society's been accepting, but I think a lot of men still struggle with the, the notions of what it is to be a man, with the notions of masculinity.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of men that live the, let's say, the standard lifestyle, the, the, you know, married and kids and that. But they, it's, it's part of who they believe they should be.
2: Yeah, I mean, anybody who's been in the military and will will. Um be really, really super honest, will, uh, especially, I don't know about these days, but people in places of war or conflict or something, will tell you that there are moments when they have been tempted if or not have given in.
1: Do you think that shame that, you know, I guess, uh, you know, even though it's still there in depending on the part of your world, but do you think that shame that, that was given to gay men, you know, gay people, um, has now been transferred to those who identify as trans and, and, and are trans? Uh,
2: look, I think there's just, I think we have a circle of hate. Um, mm. What well, every decade there's somebody new to hate. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, mm. There's a whole lot of, you know... As a Jewish
1: man, I get it, trust yeah. me. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> what's the worst thing um, th- about society? Somebody ask a question and my answer is uh, enforced religion. I mean, people should be choose to uh, be free to choose what they worship, and not to proselytize, and not to judge other people. What goes mm-hmm. on in the USA? I mean, we sit here and shake our heads so often about you know stuff that goes in on in the name of so-called mm-hmm. Christianity, which has actually got nothing to do with Christianity at all. It's about you know, I don't know what it's about giving people an opportunity to hate other people, and. I suppose it goes for all religions. I shouldn't just pick on Christians. But, you know, we see hate everywhere. It's it's cyclical. It moves from one subject to another. Uh, After trans people, it'll probably revolve to, I don't know, what's left.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it just goes back and forth. We'll go back to the Jews. Mm-hmm. You know, hope we're not. always there, don't worry yeah. We're always
1: part, part, part of stick down for sure. <laughs>
2: I mean, why, why define a person By what they do And not by who they are mm-hmm. That's also something that I try to Write about, that people Get attracted to other people By who they are Not by what they look like, not by what they do You know, it's It's why we fall in love with people properly You know, it's because of the, who the people are Otherwise you wouldn't get you know, you go see some really, really amazingly good-looking guy with a really maybe not-so-glamorous-looking woman, but they get together not because of what, the way each other looks but because of the way that they feel about each other, who that person is. There should be a lot more of that in this world. We should get rid of reality TV, put the Kardashians in the wood chipper and and mm-hmm. start, to, start to talk about, you know, real people. <laughs> 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 uh,
3: yeah yeah i couldn't say it better
2: myself well you know yeah. we aussies we say it as it is <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that because of the history there because you guys you know uh you know modern era post aborigine uh you know because obviously i think most people know that established as a penal colony do you think that's yeah. what that stems from oh, that, look, that, that, most, that, blunt, that most
2: certainly but we have a thing called i'm not sure if you you um, know about it but you need to probably read up it's called the tall poppy syndrome which means we don't like people who stick their heads up above everybody else for example um it's really considered bad luck to not bad luck it's considered uh really down class to blow your own trumpet so that whole um thing of show flaunting money and Getting people to judge you by your wealth or your standing doesn't sit well with us. So we we really like to take the piss out of people. You should. Our prime Minister is getting so much rubbish at the moment, quite publicly. You know, called the liar in public and stuff like that. That would probably not happen in many other countries in the world, um, but we do. For what though? What what is he
1: getting called out for specifically?
2: Oh. <laughs> Don't start me. <laughs> <laughs> I just he, read the engine. I just let yeah. it go, you know. <laughs> well, if you have a look at the – I don't know if you know, we did a huge $100 billion deal with the French for submarines, right, um, right. which the Australian government cancelled. And Macron, when he was asked, he said um, he said we didn't get any notice. And he said, do you think the Australian prime minister lied to you? And he said, I don't think. I know he did. And so that's now – that's one of the things. And plus – he does love to tell lies, our prime minister, and he's caught out on so many of them. And even when he's confronted with the truth, he still disavows it.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. sounds like a politician to me. Yeah. Well,
2: it's a right-wing politician, you know. We've had this fashion all over the world of our prime minister. Uh, you had Trump, Boris Johnson, Bolsonaro, the guy in in um, Belarus whose name I can't think of. Yeah. You know, these dictators all over the world who just, um, you know, just blurt out untruths and they get away with it
3: yeah yeah it's crazy it's crazy how how it you can get away with it you know i yeah. it makes no sense um when you take the characters in this book like in the servants of the crown for instance um how how do you develop them when they're already dead like this is a long time ago uh, how do you, how do you fill in the blanks like what's your method
2: well, you, I do a lot of research about um, domestic life in the period that I'm writing in. So, for example, there's if you look at... Um, do you know about Mrs Beaton's cookbook? You must have heard of that. Yeah. No? Yep. For example, she has a huge section about how the lady of the house should act what the maid does, what the valet does, what the footmen do, you know, what the scullery maid does. So just reading through that in a cookbook gives you a pretty good idea of how an aristocratic household works. And then you'd read a lot of literature of the period about the relationships between the aristocracy, the middle class and the, and the working class, and then you start to formulate what this person might be expected to do, which gives you a pretty go- good idea of the way they're going to travel through the book. In this particular book, the main character um, is the eldest son of a third son and he isn't expected to inherit anything and by total misfortune inherits a, a baronessy when he's not prepared for it and has to take over a huge global shipping company and a title and huge houses. And he really doesn't want it. So it's not a book about, oh, this is great. Isn't this fantastic? We'll make this guy into a bright, shining star. It's about his journey of struggling with moving into a different class of society and not wanting it.
3: Yeah. You know, I, I always find that to be the most interesting. How do, you, how do you think it's when you, now that you've published the book, how do you think it's changed you?
2: Uh, it's it's actually taken a huge weight on my shoulders because, as I told you before, I can't tell you how much that awful episode affected me. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty grown-up man. I've been on the earth a long time. I hate being taken for a ride, and I really, really was. So writing that book actually sort of cleansed that whole episode out of my life. It also gave me um, a lot of satisfaction of writing... In in a style that I don't normally write in, a sort of like semi Dickensian style, using the language and the form of syntax and vocabulary that was used in the 1850s, um, and to try to form really relationships as they might have been through the norms of society, what was expected in society, um, and that was a real and also discovering what it was like to be a gay man during that period. There's there's quite a lot of literature come out about that recently, including a whole book about Victorians and their servants and sexuality. So, you know, that research just made me feel good. I love researching. So that was like a tick in the box for me having done that.
3: You know, one thing that I find curious about that time, now this is long before um, gays were even legal you know there was a, there was the mindset that being homosexual you were probably sick mentally and you needed help um or you should just be put away in in jail and and you know you're something bad no matter what point of view it was so with that being in the world that you live in did did they ever have the concept or the idea of having a relationship with another
2: man not just of course sex. they did
3: What what I'm trying to get at is how would they see it um, in their mind?
2: They basically wouldn't talk about it for a start in sort of aristocratic circles. And even in aristocratic circles, if they knew somebody was gay or queer or anything, they just like accepted it. As long as they behave properly, they might uh, they might tut tut you know, to their spouse, but they would never, ever talk about it. And people, I mean, this is a period where men had two or three mistresses, remember, they got married uh, for money, for dowries, or they, you know, they the whole concept of marrying for love was not a great thing then it might have been written about in jane austen 's book, but it was an expectation of marrying within your class to further the line and most people got married to somebody they never knew really knew and they had men had mistresses, they went to brothels, they went to Molly houses, which was a gay brothel. Um, there were millions of those around, um, so it was really well understood and in the working classes and the poor class, poor classes, of course, it was just like it was during the depression for a lot of my, lot of men, there a lot of straight married men who didn't have any money went out and stood on the curb and waited for some guy to come and pick them up and give them a blow. Oh my! Job in the car. That that's where our concept of the masculine gay man comes from. That is that period of the of the depression from America where all of a sudden so-called straight men started, you know, being available yeah. for sex for money. But you know, the same thing happened in Victorian England. There's there's all sorts of scandals about um, gay bordellos where members of the aristocracy were caught. And, of course, quite famous long longstanding uh, relationships between the earls and dukes with their valet, who was their personal manservant. It was the way that they managed to continue to keep a thriving relationship going was having a close personal uh, servant, where they couldn't have with another member of the aristocracy, for example.
1: Who's the most famous person of that era um, well, yeah, I knew, that I, we know now is gay? You know?
2: I knew you were going to ask me that, but i would have to look it up. <laughs> 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 There's actually a book um, called Victorians, Their Servants and Sexuality. It's in the other room. I could go and drag it out if you like. But there is quite a famous uh, – mm. I think it was an earl, and his relationship with his valet was very, very long, you know, right throughout their lives, and everybody knew about it.
3: But they wouldn't, uh, in their mind, they wouldn't be thinking like
2: marriage. No, I think that they probably would have liked to. No, I think they probably would have liked to. You see, up until a lot of people don't, I can't see this book. I'm sitting right near my um, bookcase. There's a book about um, same-sex relationships within the church. Um, And here it is. It's called... Um, The Marriage of Likeness by John Boswell. It's a very, very good, interesting book, and it's subtitled Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe. And in that book you'll read about a whole lot of religious um, ceremonies that were uh, performed right up until the 14th century, solemnising relationships between men. That's something that people don't realise, that, you know, the the church was, you know, giving blessings to gay marriages up until the 13th or 14th centuries. Hmm. Um, so, you know, where did it change? I mean, we look back at ancient Greek, ancient Roman societies where, you know, men slept with their slaves, um, their male slaves, and they had relationships with each other. Where, where did it all change? And I, I hate to say it, it's this prevalence of sort of puritanical Christian ethic I can't comment on Judaism or Islam because I don't know much about that. Um, But if it's based on Old Testament um, stuff, then I probably will think it's pretty um, frowned upon. I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. For some reason, yeah, that's – you know.
1: I mean, is there, is there any actual place in the Bible where it's, that, where it's like, anti-gay? Like, uh, you know, I, I the, haven't read the New Testament, you know, or anything like not, that. Not in, in
2: the Old Testament. In the, yeah. in the New Testament is But we have, to my mind, and this is probably going to create a, probably a whole, whole lot of hate mail, but mm-hmm. there was a council of Nicaea, I think it was 430-something or other, um, 400 years after the death of Christ, where a whole lot of church people got together and they decided what was going to be in the Bible. Right. So, the Bible was written by a whole lot of blokes four hundred years after mm-hmm. Jesus lived, and there were certain books from the Bible cut because they didn 't fit in with male patriarchal ideas there 's a book of Mary Magdalene, for example, so women didn 't get a look in um, and who knows we, i don 't know if there were any first i don 't know if there are any first like documents of the letters of saint paul i don 't we have a document actually written in his handwriting, and he 's the one who talks about uh, you know, men laying together in abominations. I may be wrong. I may have got that all muddled up, but um, still goes on. I mean, go out, to, if you're a farmer, go out into any field and you see cows jumping on each other and bulls jumping on each other and stuff. It's part of nature, homosexuality. It's not a, a learned thing. It's a genetic thing. That's my two cents worth i all excited
3: here. Um, <laughs> so now, our, um, let's talk about people getting hold of you. And all the hate mail goes to you. So how is it <laughs> yep. people contact you?
2: Uh, through my website, which is just garrickjonesoneword.com.au. And uh, there's a, um, on the on my website, there's a, a link of how you can get in touch with me, write emails mm-hmm. to me. I'm um, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Um where else? Oh well, grinder. No, <laughs> no, no. I saw a wonderful mug the other day, um, um, which had on it. Uh, I met your dad on Grinder, and I was wondering if I could buy. Who do I know I could buy that and send it? Yeah.
3: <laughs> Boy, you have to be careful there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, if you do
1: get some hate mail, I've learned that if if as uh, half of, if as many people hate you as they do love you, you're probably actually doing something right and stuff Look, and yeah,
2: wrong. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I just I, I, the worst review I, I've I've had. Two. I'm very 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 lucky again, not only getting published so much, but uh, having really really good reviews. Um, but I, the two worst reviews I've ever had was somebody who bought The Boys of bullaroo which is all about the war and Guys fighting together, who gave it one star and said this book is full of homosexuals. I felt like saying read the f- oh my, blurb, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was about a woman who wrote um, a, a short story that was published by uh, Manifold Press. Um, it was actually set in Canada, and it's oh. called Oh Canada, the, the, the story. Um, and she wrote, and she said, I didn't like this story. It's too male.
3: Wow. <laughs> then you write I didn't like this reviewer it's too female
2: <laughs> you go what goes through these people's minds what do they do they look at the picture and go oh I'll buy that book because it's got a pretty cover that is my idea is the very very worst um, reason for buying a book you know the, re- yeah. the reason for buying a book is what what's between the front cover and the back cover well and you can <laughs> and a, good, a good cover helps but you know if. If you buy a book and people can't string three words together, what's going to make you buy another book by that writer? Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a reason why they don't put Alan on picture on on the books. Uh, Yeah, uh, unless they powder my forehead. (laughs) I
2: liked your new picture, Alan. I thought it was really good. Oh. Really nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know what Brian looks at, but I'll go and stalk him in a minute. Well,
1: he's, <laughs> he, no, yeah, he's, I don't want you obsessing over me. Come yeah, on, he's, he's, uh, <laughs>
2: he's
3: the young, good-looking man. You know, he is no. I, I have,
1: I have one patch of hair left, so I'm, I technically, uh, you know, I guess maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs>
3: the game. Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, so up-and-coming stuff, can I talk about that? Yeah, a little I was going to say, what's, what's so, coming next? Yeah, so the third Clyde Smith's Detective Stories, which is set in 1957 in Sydney, um, goes to the editor on this Saturday, and so that should hit the shelves in October. And then the third book in my World War Two stories goes to the other editor in um Um, in August and that'll be out early next year and I have a short story in an anthology of gay mysteries um, based on holidays and July which will come out in the middle of the year Um, and of course me being me I wrote to the editor and I said we don't have any holidays in Australia in July he said I write about something that's really um, that you could twist about so what did I do? I wrote a story uh, set in 1947 about a young man who is given a forced-in holiday from work because he's having a bit of a nervous breakdown after the war and told to go on a holiday. So he goes to Darwin to discover what happens to his best mate who was presumably killed during the bombing of Darwin in 1942 Mm -hmm. and then discovers this big murder mystery in it. So... Everybody's really, really loved that, who did the beta reading and the editors and the publishers, so that will come out in the middle of the year. Wow. With, I, I, including such well-known authors as uh, Michael Narva, people like that, Frank Butterfield, Brad Shreve, all will um, be very happy to be part of that collection.
3: Wow. And mind
2: you, that book took me, that short story, 18,000 Words, took me about three months of research to get right because a lot of the material is still classified. Um we, people don't realise that the bobbing of Darwin, Darwin uh, crew, there were more planes, more bombs, more ships sunk than Pearl Harbour. Yeah. Uh, uh, people don't realise that. The, the, it was the largest att- um, bombing attack on any city um, at the time in 1942 in the world, and that included Coventry in Britain.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just saw a little documentary show on that, actually, probably probably a month ago. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, it was
2: the it was the anniversary of it. I think the 70th, must have been the seventieth anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or eightieth anniversary, forty two two thousand twenty two. Yeah. That's so, why you're a uh, writer, yeah, not a mathematician. The, yeah. Okay. Um, um, yep, fascinating part of history. Mm. So, and I've also visited Darwin quite a lot. I have a a good pal who lives there, and he did a beta read for me just to make sure I get all the places right and all of the how long it take took to travel. But it's, I think it's a really good murder mystery. It's um, and, and it's also what the first erotic book I've ri- with eroticism and I've written in six mm. years. So that That's was amazing. that was actually quite fun to write. I've forgotten how much I like running. Nitty gritty scenes, so how did, <laughs> although they—they're not like other people's nitty gritty scenes. It's all comparative. <laughs> yeah,
3: of course, right. But so, when you're doing that, would you do you have to get in practice and get get someone over and sort of work it out the details?
2: <laughs> no, my memory isn't that bad. <laughs> well, you know, you might want to
3: try some new things or see if uh, certain things could work. And
2: I don't know. I'm just, trying to help out he's, he's volunteering, volunteering yeah. is what he's saying oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just
3: no i'm just trying to help out i'm i'm there i'm the writers i'm the help for the writers i'm
1: the help you the muse for sure and,
2: and <laughs> look can i give a general warning um to perhaps female writers who write uh, gay fiction and there's a lot about don't base what we do by watching porn Mm. Please don't
1: don't base anything. It doesn't have to be gay. Just oh, anything. God, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: Well, that's 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 just it. I I hear a lot of things like that. Um, in you yeah, know, get an
2: editor. Get get uh, uh, ask your best gay friend to read it and go. You know, is this possible? Is it possible to do this X thing on the first date? The answer is pretty usually no.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but you have to wonder where, um, because I hear. Um, a lot of the male-male books like that have female readers as the primary.
2: Well, it is. The, the, the male-to-male romance category is basically um, all all women, a few men, but writing for other women. Um, so that, that's the way that that's evolved.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah. It, you know, for, for me it doesn't interest me. But now.
2: Well, for- look, so I think some of, the sto- some of the stories I've read are really, really good, but they're not the ones that have a lot of sex scenes in them because that's usually where it it falls down and look honestly you know yourself men relate to each other in a completely different way than men and women relate to each other I I tried to explain to somebody once it's like pieces of a jigsaw you know have you know you have the indentation and then the bit that sticks out that fit together that's male female thing but when you've got two bits to stick out together or two indentations that bump up together there's a lot more negotiation because men we're not brought up with um, expectations of how we're supposed to behave in relationships the way that men and women are that the women do the have the babies maybe do the most of the housework and the guys you know go out to work and stuff you've got two two guys having to always continually work out who does what, Make negotiating about the relationships. Because if there are two men, we have testosterone. So there's all those other sorts of things that have to be negotiated. So I think that's the big difference uh, about really writing uh, about male-to-male and male relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly um, I don't know if you agree, but, I mean, that's my feeling. About
3: it. Yeah, I think for the most part I do, you know. But, um, <laughs> again, a younger generation might see things differently.
2: Well, I think that probably is the case. I mean, people my age, I'm in my early 70s now, um, when I was brought up, there were very defined roles, you know, that I remember having to be guarantor when my mother wanted to buy a car and I was only 18. Right. Because she wasn't able to take out a loan. Yeah. She wouldn't, couldn't get a passport without her divorced husband allowing her to get a passport you know life was very different for women back then and you when you're brought up you're brought up with the sort of mores that were in your family so you get a whole lot of ideas about defined roles and they're very very hard to shake off very hard to shake off you know, us older people fighting them all the time. I still open the doors for women. I still walk on the on the right hand side when we walk in the street. If I'm walking with a women, woman, I still say thank you. I still send thank you cards to people. I write little letters. You know, if they've invited me to dinner, thanking them. You know, it's a generational thing. Wow. <laughs> You know, don't you say, don't you, I don't know, do you open doors for for women if um, you're with them? No, I close them. (laughs) (laughs) What an uncouth man. No,
3: I, yeah, no, I do. I was brought up that way too, so I have a lot of those habits myself. But um, um, I don't see that with the younger generation. I don't see that. I don't
2: mix with the, I don't have any younger generational friends anymore. I mean, my family's all now dead, and um, the closest I have is a, cousins, I suppose they're in their teens who live in Chicago, who I've never actually ever met um, so I don't get to see, when I was lecturing at university I didn't get to see much of their social life, I just saw them as students and we had, you know, that sort of uh, relationship, but I didn't get to see how they interact with each other without me around so I don't really know what they do
3: Oh, they just slap each other at the Oscars yeah.
2: and, and that's one of the reasons, <laughs> of the reasons <laughs> I don't write contemporary books because I, I have no idea right about what's going on
3: well that could be an idea for a new new series he could be uh, brought back into the future
2: <laughs> i could write about a, a, a grumpy old man trying to negotiate his way yeah. through modern society yeah. that would plenty of experience with that yeah. um i went to a shop recently um a big department store and i wanted to buy something and it was seventeen dollars fifty and i gave the girl $22.50 and she pulled out a cal- calculator
1: oh. <laughs> good lord and
2: I said all I want is a $5 note please <laughs> and she pulled out a cal- and I just thought well this this is really indicative of how things have changed and I'm not saying it's better or worse or anything like that it's just that when I add up I don't use my uh, calculator I still do it on a piece of paper and a pencil or in my head
3: Yeah. yeah well you know that's how we do it you know so we make it
2: but I'm sure my grandparents were exactly the same. I'm sure they shook their heads over mm-hmm. my mother and her brothers and sisters in their bobby socks in oh, 1940s sure. and 1940s and 34s, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah, we see that. I think that's just the way it goes, you know. So.
2: Yeah. I, I, I remember my grandmother, um, when we came home from a trip, um, once she said, I can't wait to get inside and take my corset off and have a good old scratch. <laughs> and I thought, that's a real sign of how different life is. <laughs>
3: Well, I always like to get in and get a good scratch myself. Yeah. Well, some things never change and some things never <laughs> yes. stay the same, I guess. <laughs> well, Garrick, we are out of time, but it's been a great yep. show and of oh, course it's been great. now the book you have to go out and get is called Servants of the Crown and it's yep. The Turkish Pretender. So, yep. and the author has been a guest, Garrick Jones. Thank you for being here.
2: It's been my pleasure guys. I have really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I appreciate it.